What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Let's kick this thing off. Matthew Della Vadova is a professional basketball player for the Cleveland Cavaliers of the NBA. Della Vadova won an NBA championship with the Cleveland Cavaliers in 2016 and has become a fairly active investor across various asset classes, including real estate and venture capital. In this conversation, we discuss Delhi's basketball career, playing with LeBron James and J.R. Smith, how he got interested in investing, why he likes real estate and venture capital, which deals he has done, and what his current thoughts are on Bitcoin. I really enjoyed this conversation with Delhi, and I hope you do as well. Before we get into this episode, though, I want to quickly tell you about our sponsors. The first is BlockFi. BlockFi's got three separate products. You can buy and sell crypto, you can deposit crypto and take out a US dollar loan against your crypto collateral, or you can use my favorite product, which is their interest-bearing account. It earns you up to 8.6% interest using either crypto or a stable coin. Both Delhi and I are investors in the business. We're really big fans. BlockFi recently raised a $50 million Series C, and they're off to the races. Fast growth for a great company. So go check out BlockFi.com slash POMP. Again, BlockFi.com slash POMP and start earning up to 8.6% APY in their interest-bearing accounts. BlockFi.com slash POMP. Our next sponsor is a new one, Athletic Brewing. These folks are awesome. They're all about reimagining beer for the modern adult. They've got great tasting beer that happens to have no alcohol and be a mere fraction of the calories of even the lightest beers. Now, I know what you're thinking. The second you hear non-alcoholic beer, you're like, there's no way it can be good. I've had it. My brother's had it. My friends have had it. It literally tastes like real beer. I promise. In today's modern, mindful, performance-driven world, there's just no time for hangovers. With athletic beers, you can have the full relaxing ritual of drinking a great beer to wind down the day with your dinner or day drinking without derailing the rest of your day or week. If you think you're athletic, you should be drinking athletic brewing beers. So if you're looking for a great beer for Sunday through Thursday nights, Athletics got you covered. Their beers have won a bunch of awards on all kinds of different continents, including the World Beer Awards Best Non-Alcoholic Beer multiple times. They've even won awards versus full-strength beers. I literally was shocked when I drank the first one at how much it tastes like a real beer. So go give them a try. Use POMP25 to code POMP25 for 25% off your first order at athleticbrewing.com. I literally have a bunch sitting in my refrigerator right now. Be like me and go buy at athleticbrewing.com and use code POMP25 for 25% off your first order. Lastly, don't forget that I write a daily letter to over 50,000 investors about business technology and finance. I break down complex topics into easy to understand language while sharing my personal opinion on various aspects of each industry. You can subscribe at pompletter.com. Again, pompletter.com. All right, let's get into this episode with Delhi. This one was a lot of fun. I hope you guys enjoy it. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital 
all opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys. Bang, bang. I've got the man here himself. Delhi, what's up, man? Thanks for having me, Pom. Absolutely. Well, I, I guess uh, we should tell people right off the uh, off the start, we're doing a joint podcast. I did this one time before with Jason Kalkanis, and people loved it. So we're doing a second one. Uh, if you listen to the Delhi podcast, go subscribe to the Pomp podcast. If you listen to the Pomp podcast, go subscribe to the Delhi podcast. But uh, I just wanted to jump on and just talk with you. So uh, thanks so much for doing it. No, I'm looking forward to it. I'm uh, I'm a bit of a rookie to the podcasting game, but I've been listening to yours and, and picking up a few tips along the way. Absolutely. So let's start maybe with your background. Uh, most people know you as an NBA player, won an NBA championship and, and kind of uh, have that side of your life. But what they don't know is uh, you spend a lot of time thinking about investing and, and kind of being very intelligent and strategic on that end. Uh, just help people understand, how did you get to the NBA first? And then we'll get into the investing stuff. Yeah, so I uh, grew up in Australia in a small country town. Um, I moved away from home when I was 16 to go to the Australian Institute of Sport, which is uh, Olympic level training facility. Uh, from there, went to college in California for four years. Uh, and then uh, I've played for the national team. So I've been to two Olympics for Australia, which has been absolute highlights. Um, and then tried out for the, the 2013 draft, did about 20 NBA workouts, went undrafted, uh, got on a summer league roster with the Cavs, uh, then training camp, and then eventually made the team. What is it like to go undrafted, right? I think when people hear that, it's like this weird thing where they're like, wait a second, you end up winning an NBA championship. Like, how, how do you go from undrafted to that? So what's the feeling like when you put all this work and you met all the teams and then the draft comes and goes and no one calls your name? Uh, it's pretty crushing, really, uh, because the, you know, the percentage chances of, of making the NBA after you go undrafted aren't very good at all. Um, so, you know, it, it was it was really disappointing. I was watching it uh, with some close friends at my college coach's house, um, spoke to my agent soon after, and he said, you know, you've got it's, it's going to be okay. You're going to get another opportunity um, to go to summer league and try to prove yourself there and then go to training camp again and prove yourself there. And uh, teams bring in 20 players to a training camp. There's 15 roster spots. Uh, 13 of those roster spots are already taken. So basically there's seven guys competing for two spots. Um, you, it was funny. We were getting ready in a, basically a visiting locker room. Um, so you knew you weren't on the team, um, going into training camp and it, it was a tough grind, but, uh, makes me appreciate it every day. Yeah. What, what's the, uh, kind of culture or relationship those seven guys have as they're competing? Is this like a friendly thing or is this like, at all costs, I'm making this team. And I know that if I make it, that means there's one less spot for these other six guys. Uh, it's a, it's definitely a weird dynamic. Um, but I would say it's, it's friendly that there's a sense of camaraderie there that, you know, you know, you're all in the same boat and, uh, basketball is a sport where there's a lot of player movement and you're going to see people, you know, down the road, whether it's, 
play with them that season or it could be five years down the line. So it's definitely competitive, but uh, there's a sense of camaraderie there because it's a highly stressful situation and nobody really understands it apart from the, the seven people in that room. Yeah. Um, and then obviously uh, you go on and you play with some of the biggest stars today, right? With, uh, I think LeBron was on that team, Kyrie, uh, J.R. Smith. I mean, there's a, a whole roster full. Uh, what, what is it like kind of going undrafted, then signing, you know, pretty big contract and getting to play with those people and then ultimately play for the NBA championship? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's um, uh, amazing kind of feeling to go from that to, to then winning a championship. Um, Ke Kevin Love was another one on, on that team. And um, so the first year was the year before LeBron had come back to Cleveland. Um, so we actually missed the playoffs that year. And then at that summer league was when, um, you know, he announced he was coming back and, and everything changed. Like what are guys on the team say? It's just like such a go, like a crazy dynamic, right? It's like he left, there was this vacuum. And then when he announces he's coming back, I think fans see uh, like outside looking in, but are you, players like all texting each other being like, wait, is he serious? Or like, what, 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 like what is the kind of the conversation? Yeah, I think uh, we're in Vegas for some league when the announcement happened. I think it was on ESPN and then we had a shoot around or a game day uh, that day. And uh, I think the, the GM came over and whispered something to uh, the coach at the time, David Blatt, and you could see his face kind of light up in a big smile. And um, then they announced it and everyone's like, wow, this is pretty crazy but then i think the next thought at least for me was uh, i hope i'm still on, on this team because a lot can happen from summer league to uh the time the season starts and at that point i was on a still on a basically year by year deal so even after i made the team uh in that september october time period uh they could have cut me any time before uh, January 15, before my contract was guaranteed for the rest of the season. And then they had an option for me uh, the next season uh, as well. So you never really uh, have a secure place. Yeah. Um, and then the last thing I want to ask about basketball is uh, you play with J.R. Smith. And uh, my friends and I, like he's one of our favorite players, mainly just because he, you never know what he's going to do. He might come down the court. And I think there's a, a famous... Uh, LeBron interview where he's literally like that guy I'll shoot from anywhere. He just crosses half court and he'll chuck it up. Uh, but he seems like like super cool, nice guy or whatever. What was it like playing with him? It's funny because after, you know, the LeBron and Giannis questions, he's probably the teammate I get asked the most about. And he, he's awesome. I mean, I love JR. He, he always had your back as a teammate. Um, he had the nickname 911 because when the shot clock's running down, you can, you know, give him the ball with two or three seconds left. And those are the type of shots he, he makes. He's a shot maker. And uh, I'm happy he's got another opportunity now with the Lakers. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, all right, so you're in this uh, really interesting position, which is uh, you're a professional athlete, so there comes kind of pu public notoriety with that. Um, you have uh, a quite public um, income, right, in terms of people know the, the contracts and things that you guys sign. Uh, it's millions of dollars a year in many cases, uh, but you also spend a lot of time investing. And so what I want to maybe start with is just, you know, when did you start to be interested in investing? And then maybe we'll go asset class by asset class, but just talk to me a little bit about 
you know, you spent your whole life trying to make it to the NBA and, and play at a high level. This, I think, to many is an afterthought, but for you, you take it very seriously and spend a lot of time on it. So kind of wh where does that interest come from? Yeah, um, it's uh, something that uh, growing up, my, my dad, uh, my mom's a school teacher, so she's always stressed the importance of education. And then my dad uh, is a school bus driver, uh, but now he's been in real estate and he's been um, subdividing land for probably the last 15 years. And he's really tried to educate uh, me and my sisters and, and just teach us little things along the way. So I've had that background and, and education and that kind of got me interested in, in real estate from a pretty early age uh, and then um, didn't make basically any money until my first contract um, with, with the Cavs that year and, and started learning about stocks and bonds and different things and um, found a financial advisor and, and they've taught me a lot and I always ask them a lot of different questions and then there's just conversations that happen in the locker room between players and I've always tried to pick the brain of, of the older players and um, the veterans because that, that's the easiest way to learn is, um, you know, from their successes or their mistakes, things they've gone through and um, a lot of veterans are, are really helpful and they want to pass on their knowledge to the next generation. I think that's something that's really cool in the locker rooms in the NBA. Um, but I guess the, the main, one of the main things I'm interested in now is uh, venture capital. And that's probably happened over the last three to four years. Um, I, had a small allocation in my portfolio uh, through my financial advisors and um, would always ask them questions about what it was. And then as you start reading more about what other players in the league are doing, um, yeah, the conversations in the locker room happen a lot more around that. And, and that's what I've been focusing in on the last four years or so. Yeah, and it feels like, um, this has become much more popular, obviously, uh, in all professional sports, but the NBA specifically. Um, I think there's been a lot of uh, kind of media coverage on um, the teams in the Bay Area, just because that's kind of the the center of tech. But um, I, I think in conversations that you and I have had, uh, this is happening in every locker room, right? Like there's players who are becoming more interested in this. Um, and, and so as you're talking to your financial advisors, uh, how much, I think, education um, did you get or, or uh, interest did you get in terms of just like, oh, if we invest in innovation and hold it in the private markets for long periods of time, like that'll drive returns versus it being more like company led. Hey, that specific company I really like and I want to invest in that company. So was it more of like a, I want venture capital exposure or was it just you found kind of individual companies and, and kind of built the venture capital exposure through the interest in individual companies? Uh, I would say a little bit of both. I think early on, uh, you know, you get brought different opportunities and, um, you know, I send it through to my financial advisors, see what they think. Uh, and that led to more conversations about, you know, venture capital in general. Um, in the off season, they, they set up a few meetings for me with, with different people in, in San Francisco uh, who were very helpful. And I think that's something that I've really enjoyed is how helpful everybody is in, in the, the VC industry. Um, a lot of people have, have taught me a lot of things and um, 
Jason being one of them. I've been to his launch uh, incubator a couple of times in San Francisco. Uh, Nick Crocker from Australia has really helped me out and introduced me to a lot of people over here. And I just enjoy being around people who are trying to be their best uh, in their given field. And um, I find it very energizing to talk to somebody for 30 minutes or an hour and, and pick up a lot of the knowledge that they have on a specific subject, something that I hadn't known about before. And you get to learn from an expert for 45 minutes. It's a lot of fun. This is why I like you is because that's exactly what I like about uh, the whole podcast stuff, right? It's just, you get to sit and talk to people and learn from them. Um, You've made a number of uh, pretty cool and interesting investments. Um, I'll let you kind of pick which one you want to talk about, but maybe we'll talk about like an individual deal that you've done and kind of the process you go through. Um, I've kind of gotten to see it, you know, firsthand and um, you surprised me, I think when I saw how much diligence you did and, and kind of reference checks and, and all of that, but just what, you know, is there a deal that you want to talk about? Um, maybe we can go through the process. Yeah. Um, I'll talk about two. Um, and then I'll ask you about your process as well. But, um, first one, a recent one is, uh, levels, the constant glucose monitor and, um, I actually saw it on Twitter. Um, and, the Eight Sleep founder, Mateo, uh, another company I've invested in, was tweeting about this um, constant glucose monitor, uh, had a screenshot of a graph that that showed his glucose going up and down. And so I messaged him about that, just asking what it is. And um, it looked really interesting. And uh, he said he had uh, got involved with them, um, told me what he liked about it. And then I uh, asked him to introduce me to one of the founders, Sam, uh, emailed him. He sent me over some info. We got on a call. Um, they eventually uh, sent me one out for me to try myself. Um, I think after the call I had with him, I, I was that impressed with uh, what they had built so far and and where I could see it going and how big of an issue um, I guess obesity, diabetes is in the in the U.S. and around the world that the opportunity is massive to really help out a lot of people and for the company to be successful. Um, but I I made sure to try it for a few days first and and really loved it. I've learned some interesting things. Um, around 2 p.m., I, I kind of dip down a little bit, but if I have a handful of almonds, um, that that keeps me pretty level. Um, but overall, I was, I was eating pretty well. So that, that's one example. Um, the other one is, is BlockFi, which uh, you introduced me to, um, set up a call with, with Zach and, and Brian from BlockFi, um, learn a lot from them. And then I have a, a couple of other, I guess, contacts in, in the crypto industry who uh, I spoke to and, and messaged with, and they all said really good things about BlockFi. Um, and then I also, which I think is great for founders, um, listened to, I think, three or four different podcasts on of Zach talking, and it was interesting to see the growth uh, over time of, of the company um, from just speaking to Zach and seeing the graphs, but then also going back and listening to him speak about what they were planning to do in the future and then seeing that already uh, in the company. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, it, it, it um, so I didn't know that you were going to say that one, but uh, <laughs> on the BlockFi one, that, that's the one that I got to see kind of firsthand, right? And, and um, I remember when, 
after you got off the call, you're like, hey, this is interesting. And I think most people at that point would try to make a decision. But your process was much more, look, I've got this network of people who are professional investors. They're familiar with the company, some that are investors and some that might not be. Like, let me basically leverage their you know, work, right? That their diligence, their years of experience. Um, and ultimately, I think that helped you get to, to the point where you want to make an investment. But um, that process, I think, is uh, not utilized that often by uh, a lot of athletes, right? They kind of, they want to make the decision. And so th there's this element of like, um, kind of humbleness, right? Of like, hey, I, I might not be the expert. I'm smart enough to kind of make the decision, but let me get as much data as possible. Is that kind of how you, you looked at it? Yeah, definitely. And I think that's something I've definitely got better at because I think as an athlete, you you have a high level of confidence and uh, you like to think it translates to a lot of things, but um, you you have to be open to learning and, and getting the opinion of, of experts who are doing this day in and day out because, you know, my main job right now, even though we're in the off season, is basketball, keeping in shape, making sure my body's right for next season. Um, but then, you know, lunchtime in the afternoons, this is definitely what I like to work on. And I think one of the, the cool things about Twitter uh, is being able to DM somebody um, and ask them, hey, I'm looking at this investment. And if it's an existing investor and you're saying, can you jump on the, a call for, for 10 minutes and, and just give me your thoughts? And um, that's how I got in touch with uh, Michael Arrington. And he was awesome with, uh, you know, his feedback and, and, and what he saw in BlockFi and um, just general info on crypto, which, um, you know, I'm pretty new to. I'm still learning a lot about. But I think Twitter, um, I'm realizing that the power of it just to be able to DM somebody and, and get on a call that day. Yeah. It's uh, I always joke and say, it's what LinkedIn should have been, right? <laughs> it's, it's basically serving as that. Uh, before I keep uh, peppering you with questions, what questions you got for me? Yeah. Well, I mean, what, what is your process for, for looking at a new investment? I, I know you do a lot of crypto stuff, but if there is something where you're not, you know, uh, expert or you want to learn more, how, how do you go about finding uh, references or is it the existing investors or, or just people with general knowledge on the topic? Yeah. So, so I think one probably difference between the way that um, I invest now definitely than I used to uh, is there's a lot more follow on capital. And so we kind of have the ability to uh, write smaller checks early on, work with the founders, see them execute and kind of build conviction over time. Um, and so what that allows us to do uh, to some degree is like we can take um, a little bit more risk and, and be wrong a little bit more often because you're saving most of the capital to double down on the winners, right? And so um, that's different than let's say like an angel investor who's probably going to write one, maybe two checks into a company. And then that's pretty much the allocation for the business, right? So they've got to be um, kind of much more uh, accurate right? If you think of it that way, in terms of that, that initial investment. Now, from a process standpoint, uh, it also comes down to like, what are you investing in, right? And I think that because we invest so early, it's just the person, right? Like, that's ultimately all I care about. Um, and do they have a good idea that actually feeds into an analysis of the person, right? Like, 
are they a, a uh, intelligent person who has a defendable thesis as to why they're spending their time and energy on this idea versus you know hundreds of others? Um, how do they actually like critically think about it? So do they have a good understanding of what other people in the market are doing? Maybe other attempts that haven't worked, why didn't they work? Like all of those things that I think uh, investors normally ask, I just look at it through the perspective of like, is this a sound decision maker? And is this person going to be like persistent? Right. If they really care about this, they're going to be persistent and they make good decisions. Like, we got a shot. Right. Like, that's pretty much all you can ask for really early on. Um, And so, part of that ends up being uh, a lot of uh, kind of reference checking or triangulating on like that individual person and, and making sure that the initial read you get through conversation is what other people who know them well agree with. Uh, and then the part that I actually like is. You know, BlockFi is a great example. Uh, I don't remember the exact amount that we did. I think it was like two hundred fifty thousand dollars. You know, at a twenty million dollar valuation or something, right? So we we were probably one of the smaller investors in some of these rounds um, initially. But at, over time, as we saw Zach and Flory and, and and the rest of the BlockFi team execute, then it was like, oh, okay, like now we want to write big checks, right? And and because we had the capital base to do that, we have an advantage um, in, in being able to almost uh, kind of de-risk it over time, uh, but. You know, they're a perfect example. You just bet on the right people. Like they were not pitching me on a, a Bitcoin rewards credit card, you know, two years ago. That was not part of the conversation. Um, yeah. But but now they just kind of figured out what to uh, what to do, right? Yeah. And what about the, I guess, the process of um, going from an angel investor, investing your own money to um, in, investing out of a fund where you're investing other people's money? What about the the process you go through there? Do you have to do a lot more, um, I guess, diligence or, you know, follow up, write up a report? Has that process changed much for you? Yeah, I think that there's uh, some similarities and some differences, right? So like um, you tend to uh, see, and and this is uh, maybe somewhat controversial view, but uh, I tend to see that people are actually uh, more conservative with their own capital which most people look at as a negative, right? Being that like, oh, if you invest other people's money, that means that you're less conservative. But in venture capital specifically, like we know that the outlier returns come from like the crazy, you know, very small probability of working type companies. So when Airbnb was raising their seed round, like they had air mattresses in their kitchen, in their apartment. Right, like that. That's just something that seems crazy, right? Um, And and so, I do think that uh, venture capital is like one area where um, having like less conservatism in the way that you think about investing uh, can be a benefit. Now, if you go kind of you know overboard and you act crazy or something, then it could be a negative. So, I think one, there's an advantage to that Uh, in terms of uh, raising other capital from other people. Really, what they want to see is again, they want to see good decision making and they want to see kind of what I'll call just like institutional organization, right? And so that could literally be done on a spreadsheet that could be done in Google Docs, or it can be done like we do where you've got a whole team and, and kind of a, a really big uh, kind of robust, um, you know, offering and back office and things like that. But ultimately, it's just like an LP is just wanting to know, can I trust you? Yeah. Right. Like, like, like they have all these crazy questions. They, you know, have all these weird things that they do to do the diligence, but like, that's what they're trying to get at. It's just, can I trust you? And if you check that box um, by showing you have a process, you have you know a pipeline, you have um, a way to document uh, the decisions you make and the reasoning behind those decisions, and you give good updates and all that kind of stuff, then they're going to give you money, right? So 
if they don't trust you, like, good luck. <laughs> and, so, and so like, I think people are just kind of make it more complex than it really is um, because they get caught in all the details. But like, that's all an LP wants. It's just, you know, hey, Deli, can I trust you? If I can trust you to make good decisions and find good deals, then why would I not give you money? Right. And yeah. I think that's what, what kind of the, the focus is, at least when I think of fundraising. Yeah. Yeah. Is it, um, do you enjoy the process of, of fundraising money from LPs or is that? It's weird. Um, I've told my partners this before. I hate fundraising in like everything other than being in the room. Like there, there's <laughs> something about like the actual conversation um, that's like somewhat competitive, right? It, it's kind of like they know you're there to ask them for money. You know you're there to ask for money. And so like, but you can't just blatantly start the meeting with like, I want your money, right? So like, you're almost like, uh, you're, you're playing this, um, it's not really a game, but like there, there's definitely some balance, right? Yeah, and, and, and it's one where, um, look, these people are incredibly intelligent, right? So you, so you wanna be respectful, but they'd be the first to say, you probably have a better understanding of like your very niche strategy than they do who's, you know, they're more allocating to the experts, right? Yeah. And so you, you got to kind of balance that. But uh, that part of fundraising is super fun. And you know, just like anything, it's, uh, you know, if you go in and you ask somebody for money and they say they'll give you a lot, you know, you're super euphoric and you feel like on top of the world. And if you ask and they say no, then you're like down in the dumps, right? It's like, you know, same thing as basketball or anything else. It's like when you're when you're good at it, you like it. When you're not good, it's depressing, right? <laughs> Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Yeah, because you, you've got an Angelus Syndicate now, right? Yeah, yeah. So um, that's something that I, I kind of view as my next step uh, in the venture capital world. This is something um, you know, investing in the venture stuff is, is something I want to do full time uh, when I'm finished playing. Which uh, I'm not planning on it being for a while. I'm seven years in, and um, body's still feeling good, um, but it was something I was going to try to do maybe in a year or two, do a syndicate. And then, you know, the, the pandemic hits and I'm like, okay, well, you know, the season's on pause for a while. Um, if there's a good opportunity uh, for a company, I'm going to try to syndicate one. And a uh, great company came along, uh, Simple Water, um, does uh, home business water testing. Uh, you basically order it online they mail it to you with a box uh with an envelope to to mail out to whichever water testing company uh it goes to and then they also have uh, a platform for the labs so um yeah i think it's a really exciting company making that uh market a lot more efficient so that one came along syndicated it um actually co-syndicated it with uh, Peter Livingston, who I've invested with on AngelList uh, quite a bit. He was super helpful, as were the people at AngelList. And um, yeah, kind of got a taste for it. Uh, I'm working on another one right now. And um, yeah, I think I'm going to try to continue to do that and, and hopefully build a track record there that I can, by the time I'm done playing, um, you know, can show potential LPs down the line. Yeah. And, and what's interesting with this is uh, in the syndicates, I, I've run a couple of them and it's, I'm going to put capital in and you basically can come in alongside me and like, here's why I'm doing it. Right. So, so it's not a, Hey, I have a, this opportunity, but like, I'm not going to put any money in. You're putting your capital and then 
asking people to invest alongside you, which I think is a way better model than if you just had like a deal and could like somehow show it to people, but you didn't have to risk any capital either, right? Yeah, I, I think that's a, a great model that the incentives are aligned. Um, and yeah, I think just in general, the AngelList platform for for people that are trying to learn about venture, I, I think I've seen, you know, I've seen a ton of deals on there, um, done, you know, a, a bit of investing on there. And it just, I think, helps you almost calibrate um, what's a good deal, what's not a good deal, what do you like to invest in? Um, and even if you're not actively investing, you can join some syndicates, um, get some deal flow and, and just learn. And I think it's a great platform for that. Yeah. Um, and, and in terms of the types of companies that you're generally looking for in the venture space, uh, you seem to have much more of a generalist view. Um, is that true or, or are there specific things that, that you're looking for? Uh, I would say generalist. Um, there's no specific vertical I've found yet that, um, yeah, I've kind of dived right into it. I think it's more just company by company. Um, and then I'll dive deep on, on a you know, specific thing. And I enjoy learning about a ton of different topics from, um, you know, water quality to um, crypto stuff to space satellites, constant glucose monitors. It's there's a wide range. And I, I like to I think I like to keep it that way. Yeah. Space satellites, you're gonna have to explain that one. Yeah, so um, it, this was a later stage deal, but uh, basically they send up uh, micro satellites, so smaller ones, um, and then they can basically spread them out more uh, to get more accurate readings of weather, um, currents, and uh, different things in oceans. Um, and because of uh, the lack of planes flying, um, you know, due to the pandemic, especially early on, um, the quality of weather prediction went down, which, um, you know, I thought was really interesting kind of side effect. Yeah. yeah. It's, um, I, I, I forget the company. There's a company that I saw uh, right when they were starting and uh, they were shooting like these little mini satellites into the space. And I remember just being like, man, we don't know any, like we're so primitive when it comes to all of the things that probably are going to be true, you know, 50, hundred years from now. Right. And so seeing yeah. everything from, you know, reusable rockets, like you can just see the innovation happening. Um, and it feels like that's going to be, you know, one of the next great frontiers. Right. Yeah. It's like the stuff that you see in movies, sometimes you're like, oh, that's maybe in 30 years, but people are actually working on this stuff and um, it's pretty cool to see and even be able to talk to some of them about what they're working on. But what, what about you? Do you, I know you obviously focus on crypto, but what, what do you do when you see other deals, I guess, outside that category? Yeah, so uh, I have two standing rules. One is uh, when your friends start a company, you have to invest. And really, it's... Um, really? Because uh, a lot of people are the opposite. So what I'll do is I'll usually write uh, a small check, um, but... Uh, I forget who said this. Somebody uh, gave this advice and it wasn't to me directly. It was like in public. Uh, it might've been on Twitter or I, or I listened to it in a podcast or something. Uh, but they basically were like, look, when your friends start a company, like you want to be aligned and cheering for their success. And it's like a great way to do that. Even if you write the smallest check on the cap table, like just having some skin in the game one. Uh, but they were like, and then two is you won't like want to jump off the building if they end up building like the next Uber and you missed out. 
right? So, so you, they, whoever this person was, was basically making the argument that like, you know, upside, you get to participate downside, you completely protect yourself from, right? So they were yeah. like, so like, you have to invest. Uh, so that's one rule. Uh, and then the second one is, um, I started out being like very generalist and then obviously started to focus on uh, Bitcoin and crypto, uh, but I'll still see things that I think are interesting. Uh, and I frankly, I don't have a great um, kind of plan as to like what to do there. Um, I've thought about everything from you know syndicating to rolling funds to uh, just continue doing things personally. Um, but, but I do think that uh, there's a lot of stuff outside of crypto that's obviously one interesting, um, but also two is uh, the types of founders that, gravitate towards crypto are very different than the types of founders that gravitate towards other things, right? And, and there's positives and negatives to that. Um, and, and so I think that if you believe you're just investing in people, ultimately, like you want to have a lot of diversity, right? And, and so it's important to kind of still have access to the non-crypto stuff and, and do some of it, even if it's not the focus, um, because I think that it just kind of balances out portfolios and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, no, that that's interesting. Does uh, what what are some of the things you've learned from uh, your time at Facebook and Snapchat that that help you today when evaluating founders or, or companies? Yeah, um, so definitely at Facebook specifically, uh, I was very fortunate just to work with um, some of the best people probably in the world. Right, I mean, literally there's a number of people I worked with that had been there since the early days of Facebook, like, you know, first 50 employee type thing. Uh, and they were still there. So these are people who had a front row seat and, uh, you know, worst argument ever would be that they got lucky. Best argument would be that they helped build one of the most valuable companies in the world. Right. And so they just had been there and they had lasted. Um, and so you get to kind of see like, how do they operate? Right. And that doesn't mean that everything they do is perfect, but it does mean that um, they've been able to contribute in a meaningful way to the creation of this, you know, amazing business. Um, and so when you see that, like you definitely pick up some pattern recognition of just like here are things that, you know, the top operators do. And so when you see it again, you kind of just notice it. Uh, two is I think that uh, for me personally, one of the things um, that I did when I was there, uh, I think I can't remember if it was 14 or 15, uh, I spent uh, more time than most uh, doing interviews. So the way that it works is uh, at Facebook, you end up um, like if somebody wants to be a product manager, they end up getting interviewed by product managers at Facebook. So okay. there's like a recruiter and all this kind of stuff, but like ultimately your future peers are the ones that make the decision, which is kind of a cool way to uh, one, the existing employees make sure that the people who are joining them like meet the standard according to them. Uh, but also too is for me, it was a great learning experience. I think I uh, did interviews with like over a hundred candidates, you know, in, in one of those years. And it's just like, you just get to understand like good answers, bad answers in an interview, right? Like people who think critically and, and I've talked about it before, but it's like simple things. Like one of my favorite interview questions is, you know, hey, Deli, you uh, are responsible for uh, the Facebook pages team. You go home Friday night, everything's great. You come in Monday morning and traffic dropped 50% to the product. Like, what do you do? <laughs> right. And, and you just kind of like give them the scenario. And a good answer to that would be like, um, you know, I would immediately. Uh, look at all of the dashboards and try to identify potential reasons why, you know, blah, 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 whatever. Uh, a bad answer would be like, uh, I would, I would, um, call an engineer and ask them what happened, right? But the yeah. great answer would be, and this literally, I, that was a question I used to ask people, a great answer would be, the first thing I would do is I would immediately communicate to every single stakeholder that we had a problem. Then I would yeah. go look at the dashboard, right? And like, and it's just like, oh, this person's done this before. 
right? Okay. Like, like yeah. this person is not uh, kind of academically going through the theory. This person has been in the situation. They understand like communicating the problem first before trying to solve it is important because it gets all hands on deck. And so you just, you know, doing enough of these interviews, you realize little things like that. And so in evaluating founders, you can play some of the same games, right? You can say, hey, you're running this business. Like what happens if X occurs or if a competitor does Y or, or whatever? And you can pretty much tell like, here's the people who, you know, think critically and, and soundly versus people who, you know, they basically have a dream and, uh, and no plan to kind of get there. Yeah, no, that's interesting. When, when you said about how the, uh, the existing product managers uh, interview the new one like that. That would be really interesting. I, I don't think it's legal uh, in the NBA, but if you had draft prospects come in and scrimmage with the existing team and then the players gave their feedback, uh, that would you'd probably get a pretty accurate uh, evaluation. I, I mean, I, I didn't even know that you couldn't do that, but like that would be one amazing. Like if fans could watch that type of stuff, they would love it, right? Because it, it would almost be like a mix of... Um, Remember, uh, was that the end one tour? You remember that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and they would bring I, I like. I think I watched that on VHS in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> but they would like bring people, you know, like kind of everyday people, and they would get a play, and they weren't playing NBA players, but they were playing like the end one professional, you know, whatever people. Uh, and those players would like pretty much recruit if you were the best guy in that local city, you got invited on the tour, right? <laughs> so it's like kind of the same thing. It's just you can be on an NBA team rather than uh, join the end one tour. Yeah, no, that, that's pretty cool. I didn't know the end one tour did that where they recruited people in from basically yeah, just playing against them. They, and I forget uh, who did it, but they would like go to like a local town or city or whatever. So maybe they could show up to Sacramento, right? And it's like all the best basketball players in Sacramento and all the worst basketball players all show up. Right. And they basically have like these like street runs. And you get the guys off the end one tour and maybe they throw, you know, two or three people from the local community in. And I think that I'm pretty sure that there was a couple of folks who, you know, they just played and everyone was like, wow, that person is really good. Like you should get them on the tour. And they ended up uh, joining. That's one way to get the call up. That's uh, <laughs> pretty cool. Well, well, the question is like, would NBA players be, uh, would they behave themselves if they were playing and they knew that like whatever happened on the court would determine that they would get to determine who gets to be on the team. Right. <laughs> or would they just like play uh, as my brothers call it like bully ball. Right. Would they just be like, nah, listen, we're, we're the, we're the pros here. Right. Uh, they're probably like, uh, yeah, I like this guy. He just keeps passing the ball and I get to shoot it all the time. <laughs> Something like that. I can see that happening, but, uh, yeah. Well, one other thing I, I wanted to ask you about is um, your, your background in the army. I mean, what yeah. what is like? I've never really heard you talk about that. And I listen to to your podcast quite a bit. And and what I guess skills and habits did you learn there that you kind of carry forward to today? Yeah. Um, so I've obviously thought a lot about this. Uh, I would say that there's three things uh, that I took away from it. One was um, I call it like the mortality check which basically is this whole idea of uh, I was t 20 years old. And when, you know, when you're 20, you think like you're literally Superman, right? You're going to live forever. You are only going to get stronger, faster, better looking, like, you know, like life's going in the right direction. Um, but at 20, uh, I was basically thrown into a combat zone with guys who were older than me. So 
I don't remember the exact kind of average age, but they were definitely, you know, married, they have kids, they've got like a mortgage at home, like they're living real life. And I'm still living like, you know, fantasy college student life. Um, and uh, in the combat zone, you just see death. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's always, you know, somebody you know well, um, or even somebody that's an American, right? It could just literally be you see death of people in the local communities and, and kind of all this stuff. And so I think it's just this like reminder, like, hey, we're all going to die at some point, right? And so uh, when I came back, I think there was a big shift in my mentality of like, just live life and enjoy it. And like, you're, you're just not getting out alive, right? So like, that yeah. definitely, um, I think one, like, made me not worry about all the little things that I probably, you know, as a 20 year old kid thought was important, you realize isn't. Um, and then two, it really gave me license to like kind of go bigger, right? Which I think has, has served me well. Uh, and then the other two things I learned were more like actionable things on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, one was just like discipline. Um, I was already pretty disciplined, you know, played sports in college and things like that. But uh, this was a level of discipline of like, even when you really don't want to do something, like you get home from a mission, uh, you know, onto the base, it's late at night, and you know you're going to turn around in six hours and go back out on another mission or something, like you clean your weapon. And the reason you do that is because if tomorrow you start shooting and your weapon jams, like you could die, right? And so, and so like you just learn like every decision you make, uh, if you keep discipline, like ends up putting you in a position where you can be successful. Um, and then the last one was always just like, it's all about people. Right. So even in the army where like you don't get to pick the people, you quickly kind of figure out, okay, Dilly's a good guy. Like, you know, if bad shit happens, like I want to be standing next to him. There's, you know, the other guy who's like in a freeze, like maybe I don't want to be standing near him. Right. And so wow. you just kind of like start to understand like the people you surround yourself with can determine a lot about your life. Um, and you know, that's kind of an extreme life or death type situation. But even just in investing or, or uh, you know, basketball team, whatever, um, that stuff really matters. And so I think that was like a big lesson learned as well. Yeah, no, that, that's really interesting. I mean, on a much smaller and less important scale, I mean, I think uh, as basketball players, you know who you want uh, you know, on the court with you when the other team's going on a run or in the playoffs when, when a game is close. And um, I guess that just builds over time through, you know, relying on people in, in high pressure situations. Yeah, nine one one, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jay Hart, here you go. He'll, he'll make it. He'll make it. I I, I saw somebody uh, was tweeting. I think they made it into a GIF. Uh, I saw it yesterday. Uh, he's with the Knicks, and he hits like uh, you know, kind of a the buzzer's going down. He hits the three, and he and he turns, and he's on a knee, and he's got like the windmill with his arm <laughs> or whatever. And it's just like, look, man, the guy's having fun. So it makes sense. Uh, real estate. You, uh, you obviously have done um, a bunch of stuff in real estate. Sounds like your dad um, is really interested in that as well. Talk a little bit just about how you've thought about investing in real estate and kind of what you've done, whatever you want to share. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I've done a, a bit of stuff with my mom and dad uh, in my hometown, which is a, a small country town. And, um, you know, he, he started off, I think, doing... Um, like some smaller subdivisions, um, like a rental property, then some smaller subdivisions and has kind of continued to, to work his way up. Um, but just, I guess, understanding how you can use, you know, other people's money, meaning like the bank's money to, to get a loan, to add value to a certain thing and then either hold it um, to, to get rent coming in 
or to to sell it and then move that money into another project. I think um, understanding how you can use the bank um, to your advantage um, is one of the big things I've learned from him. And um, yeah, I think just over time, uh, and I know we're going to talk a little bit about Bitcoin and inflation, but over time, um, you know, I've, I've known they've seen really good results. Uh, he always loves to tell me he's never lost money on land because they're, they're not making any more of that. So, um, well, especially it, in Australia, right? You're, you, you know that there's no more land. <laughs> yeah, because you're surrounded by water, uh, even though there is a lot of a land, um, you know, obviously it's a big country, but um, yeah, you just see, I guess, Melbourne, you know, the big city I'm closest to, the, the boundaries of it are just continuously expanding with subdivision after subdivision. So you can see it. I mean, every time I, I go back to Australia and you we're driving from the airport in Melbourne out to Maribar, you know, there's just more of Melbourne to get through before you, you know, are on the country roads. Yeah. And, and I think that the point you're making about the banks, um, one of the conversations we had, you basically like, look, it's leverage. Right, yeah. and it's intelligent leverage, and and if you're smart about kind of managing that, and, and how much capital you put down, and and all of those types of ratios and things like that, like it can be your friend. Um, and it sounds like that's you know one of the big things that has uh, kind of caught your attention and got you really interested in real estate. Yeah, and um, he got me the the rich dad poor dad book to read, and and that kind of laid out um, you know some really helpful things. Um, in a pretty easy to understand way. And um, I think it, it's okay, you know, with leverage, there's obviously risk, but um, being in a smaller country town, you know, you're not going to have the, the crazy price growth over time, but you have a really good rental yield that, that covers the mortgage uh, and then some usually. So um, it's a pretty stable asset to be in. Yeah. And, and uh, everything that you do in real estate is in Australia or you do some in the United States too? Uh, I do a little bit over here. Um, my financial advisors have, you know, some real estate funds uh, and then have a rental property here. Um, but that's something that's more time consuming um, and you, you need to be hands on and understand everything uh, that's going on there. So um, because I can, you know, rely and trust on my dad, um, that's, you know, where, where most of that is for now. For sure. All right. Let's talk about it, man. Inflation and Bitcoin. What, uh, what, what do you want to talk about when it comes to this stuff? Well, I think for my listeners and being my mom and dad and my sisters who I've tried to explain to them, uh, if you could just give us a, a really basic understanding of, of Bitcoin, why it's important, um, and then how inflation gets into it. Yeah. Um, so I think the easiest way to talk about it is just uh, first start with what is money, right? Money is a belief system. The reason why uh, you and I exchange US dollars or um, any other currency is because uh, we believe that it has value, right? So you're willing to accept it in exchange for goods or services. Uh, and so am I. And so, um, you know, with that as kind of the underpinning, it then is why does somebody trust the US dollar or anything else? Well, having a government back it is a pretty damn good reason to do it, right? And that stood kind of the test of time uh, for a very long time. Now, when it comes to uh, kind of moving forward, most of those 
currencies are not backed by anything, right? And, and so now there's this rise or, or popularity of digital currencies. And so um, when you think about digital currency, there's two key components. There's the technology and then there's the monetary policy. And so just like there's a technology and monetary policy to, let's say, the U.S. dollar, right? There's a technology and po uh, monetary policy to these digital currencies as well. Uh, the technology is what gets all of the uh, kind of attention, especially in the media, right? Is people like, oh, it's decentralized, it's digital, you know, all that. Ultimately, it just means that there's no government backing it. Um, and it means that uh, by being a digital currency that's based on a blockchain, uh, everything's fully transparent. Right, and, and the way that I describe the uh, the blockchain usually is just when you play Monopoly, right? If me, you, and two other people play, uh, we sit down, we start with the board in front of us, we put our money, right, which is kind of our account laid out in front of us, and then there's a bank account that's kind of off to the side, but there's no fifth player who's like the designated banker who doesn't play the game. Right. And so the reason why Monopoly works is because all the money that's transferred, everyone can see. So if you pass go, we reach in the bank, we give you $200. Right. If I buy something, right, then I give the money to somebody. And, and because everyone can see every transaction, there's trust, right? Or there's verification. Um, and so Monopoly works. That's exactly what a blockchain does. It just does it in an automated fashion. So everyone can see every transaction. And that ultimately leads to uh, kind of the truth being always available. Um, the more interesting part to me is not the technology though, right? The monetary policy, I think, is the big kind of inflection point um, in terms of uh, why this is gaining popularity. And so the US dollar, you mentioned inflation, the way that it is structured is uh, more and more of it is created over time. And what that does is it devalues the currency. So why do people buy real estate, buy art, buy gold and precious metals, right? All these different things. It's because what they're trying to do is get out of the dollar, right? They, if they hold dollars, they will be worth less and less over time um, on a purchasing power basis. So yes, it still says $1, but that $1 can buy you less goods and services than it could you know, five years ago. And so you're financially incentivized to get out of dollars and get into store value assets or, or other types of assets. Uh, that's hard, right? So take your mom who, who you said was a school teacher. We basically ask her to go to work every day and to be the best school teacher possible, right? Teach the kids and, and do a great job. But then we also ask her to take her income and go be a professional investor on, on top of that. And that's hard, right? That's why in, you know, especially the United States, like I think it's 45% of Americans own no investable assets. Like they, there's no financial education. They don't know this stuff. And so in this system where you're devaluing the dollar, investors are rewarded and savers are punished, right? Because you're just putting dollars in a bank account saving, but it's being devalued. And so now comes along Bitcoin. And Bitcoin basically has the exact opposite monetary policy. So rather than there being more and more of it created every year, there's just a set amount, meaning that there's only ever going to be 21 million Bitcoin. Um, and there's a programmatic distribution of it. So every 10 minutes, a certain predetermined amount is given out into the network. Um, and this looks very similar to gold, right? It's kind of a sound money, meaning that um, it's scarce. Uh, but the difference between Bitcoin and gold is that Bitcoin is provably scarce, meaning that you know exactly how much are available. Uh, you know exactly how much are in circulation. With gold, you basically have estimates, but those estimates have, have essentially you know, drawn um, confidence from people for thousands of years. And so I think when you kind of zoom out, you say, okay, there's two different types of currencies, right? There's 
the fiat currencies, which are inflationary. Um, and that's kind of the system we live in today, right? Where your currency is going to get devalued over time. And so you're financially incentivized to buy goods and services or to invest. And if you do that well, you actually can get really rich, right? Because you can get out of the dollar, get into assets, those asset prices go up, real estate appreciates, all that kind of stuff, and you end up building wealth. But in the new system, you aren't required to buy goods and services or to invest. You can simply save. And what you're doing is you're saving a scarce asset. And so over time, that actually becomes more and more valuable in US dollar terms, right? So it's gone from you know fractions of a penny 11, 12 years ago to today, it's worth you know $12,000 or whatever it is. And so I think that's like the, the big difference is just a digital currency has a different monetary policy than the fiat currencies. The debate is just which one's better, right? And kind of, you know, how, how does that happen? Uh, but I think that's really the big difference. Yeah, no, thank you for that. And then uh, I'll just ping off a few questions that they've been asking me because you'll be able to answer them better. Um, why is Bitcoin like the cryptocurrency, like as Bitcoin was created uh, and has had a rapid rise, um, you know, why couldn't there just be another crypto come in and, and take its place? Yeah, so uh, two aspects to the answer here. So the first aspect is um, there's, I don't know, five or 6,000 like digital assets now. There's only a, a handful that are actually trying to be money, right? So Bitcoin uh, would like to be the standard, right, or, or the global reserve currency. Uh, there's others like, um, you know, Ethereum or Ether now is trying to be money and, and a couple of others. But ultimately, uh, the competition is, let's call it maybe among 15 digital assets that, that uh, would like to be money. But remember that money is a belief system. And so just as Facebook becomes more and more valuable as more people join their social graph or their social network, right? Because there's more people to connect with, there's more content, you kind of get tied into it. Money has a network effect as well. And so the more people that use the same money and believe in the same money, the stronger it becomes or the more valuable it becomes. And I think that Bitcoin's advantage was one, it was first. Two, it was able to uh, gain adoption with a very specific type of uh, person who had you know, very long-term view around sound money and, and the problems in the legacy system. Uh, but then three is just now we're at the point where it has the biggest network effect. And so it's got the most belief behind it, right? And the market has kind of determined it to be the quote-unquote most valuable. And so if it fails, I'm of the belief that actually another one won't be able to be successful. And what I mean by that is, you know, in Venezuela, the Bolivar failed. If the Venezuelan government comes out now, it's like, oh, sorry, guys, like we messed that one up. But like, here's our next one. People are just like, nah, you got us once. Like, you're not, we're, we're not trusting you a second time. And so I think like Bitcoin's a similar thing here where uh, this idea of like a decentralized, non sovereign currency, people are bought into it right now. And from a mindshare standpoint, if it failed, I don't think somebody could create another one and be like, oh, sorry, we messed up the first one, but like, here's the next one. Right. So I think Bitcoin's kind of the shot. Um, and so far so good, but but that's kind of how I look at it. What would you say the, the biggest threats are to Bitcoin? Um, not being like a crypt, another crypto passing it, but why would it not become, you know, uh, successful? Yeah. So I think that um, the number one, like most serious threat to it is what I call self inflicted wound. So basically, there's 
you know, uh, software code being written and runs the Bitcoin network and, and it's constantly being updated. Uh, that process is very methodical and intentional because there's, you know, 200 plus billion dollars of market cap to protect. Uh, but if at some point there was a software bug that was introduced, that could cause catastrophic problems, right? And so obviously the development process tries to and, and has successfully uh, for a long time prevented that from happening. But that to me is like, you know, risk number one. Uh, the second risk is uh, there could be uh, some sort of ownership ban, right? So the United States, you can't shut it down because it's decentralized. So what they could do is they could basically say, we're going to ban ownership in the United States. Now, that would be short term, very negative for the asset. I personally believe that other countries that, you know, are uh, frenemies with the US, so kind of the Russias and Chinas of the world, they may actually say, oh, wait, you guys are explicitly saying you're not going to use this thing. Like, we want to get off the US dollars, like, we'll use it, right? And kind of it actually drives adoption over the long term. Um, but I do see that as a, a risk, obviously, is, you know, if you're in the United States or in Australia, and your government says, hey, we're going to ban ownership, like, that's not good, right? And I think most people generally want to comply with the law. Um, and then the third thing is, uh, I do think that there is um, potentially in the future risk around like a quantum computer or, you know, some sort of like 51% attack type thing where just somebody gets a superior computer. Now, what I always tell people is like, one, I don't think we're anywhere close to that being developed, but also two, like, I don't know, let's say that you stop playing in the NBA and you're the one who creates the quantum computer, right? And I said to you, what are all the things in the world that you can use your quantum computer for? Like attacking Bitcoin's network is probably not very high on the list, mainly because once you attack the network and it's been violated or someone, you know, it's known that it's no longer decentralized, it kind of becomes worthless. Right. So it's not like you could like go and steal yeah. all the Bitcoin because then those Bitcoin would just be worthless. So if like you have a quantum computer, there's way other, you know, way more important and a much more kind of productive, profitable things you could do than go attack the Bitcoin network unless you just wanted to destroy it. But I, I just don't see that as like an, a, an actual kind of high probability risk right now. Yeah. What, what about um, like a few main players um, getting enough Bitcoin where they can basically control the price? Um, so th there's people who would uh, say, so the hardcore Bitcoiners would say one Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin, right? Similar to one US dollar equals one US dollar. Now on a purchasing price standpoint, we know that that's, uh, kind of a nuance. Um, but from a US dollar value, right? So today Bitcoin's at about $12,000. Um, there probably already has been some price suppression, right? So if you go back to 2017, uh, ballpark, it went from like a thousand dollars to 20,000 at the end of the year. Um, I, if I remember correctly, uh, there was, I think it was futures contracts got approved first. So basically there, there was a, um, kind of in the legacy finance world, there was a derivative introduced that allowed you to short Bitcoin. So pretty much it was long only. And so what were people doing? They were going long, right? And everyone was kind of seeing that th their, uh, portfolio increased in value. Well, the high for Bitcoin in 2017 and, and still the all-time high till today was right before, I think it was like the day before, two days before that derivative was introduced. And so this whole idea of like now there's more equilibrium in the market because there's people who can go long and go short. So that was kind of step one. The second thing is like, there's been plenty of price suppression. I think even some of the US banks got in trouble uh, in the gold market, for example. Right. So like this stuff happens in, in markets all, all over the place. Um, 
I keep telling myself that like, it's still so small. It's like $200 billion. I think gold's like eight or 9 trillion. Right. So like, it's probably just, isn't that interesting to them yet. When it starts to go up, I think you'll see, you know, some of the big boys like, Hey, wait a second. Um, but, but I don't think we're there yet. Yeah. And, and speaking of where, where it's going, like where, and I know we've discussed this a little bit before, but end, end of next year, where, where do you see it going and, and what would have to happen for it to get there? Yeah. So structurally, um, you know, as early as like summer of last year, uh, it became, I don't want to say obvious, but like it became higher probability that uh, we were kind of late cycle in the macro environment. Meaning that, um, you know, we had been on this like really long 10 year bull market in public equities uh, and there were starting to be just warning signs, right? And and not necessarily signs of like, hey, the market's going to tank tomorrow, but just you saw things like inverted yield curves. You saw, you know, a very high high number of CEOs leaving their jobs. You saw these like gyrations or market breakdowns uh, in the repo markets, like just things where you're like, okay, we're getting towards the late end of this bull market when it turns over like, that's not going to be good. And so you start to think, okay, when you end it up going into a recession or, or a depression or what, you know, whatever, uh, what can people do? And so governments naturally want to step in and help, right? And so they can basically manipulate interest rates or they can print money. And what they did with the interest rates is uh, they're going to drop them, right? And so uh, I, I was writing last summer about like, hey, they're going to drop them you know, pretty aggressively was basically my thought process. I didn't think that they would go to zero, but I think they thought they would drop it. And then they're going to have to print money. I thought, you know, again, I don't know, a couple hundred billion, maybe you get to 1 trillion, but like, they're not going to print 3 trillion, right? And so, you know, fast forward to now, like this whole COVID-19 thing has accelerated a lot of this, right? And did I foresee a global pandemic? No, right? I don't think anyone really did. Um, But it definitely kind of... uh, was the pin that popped the bubble, right, to some degree. And so what we thought would happen in the macro environment happened, right? They had two emergency rate cuts, dropped rates to zero, then they printed money at an incredible rate, you know, historic levels of of quantitative easing. And all of that happened almost simultaneously from a timeline perspective with this Bitcoin halving, which is basically the daily incoming supply of the asset got cut by 50% in May of this year, right? And, And that's programmatic. And so what I was talking about last year was like this, if they cut rates, print money and having occurs all around the same time, it's like rocket fuel. And so now we sit here and we're like, okay, well, all of that happened. Right. And so, you know, we can sit and pat ourselves on the back or we can look and say like, well, what was the financial performance? And so as we're sitting today, I looked this afternoon, uh, Bitcoin's up about 70 to 75% since the beginning of the year. Right. So it literally, Started the year at one point, it had dropped fifty percent, which is you know super scary for folks. Uh, but now it's up, um, so that it's a seventy percent um, kind of up on the year, and it's up forty five percent since the halving. And so, like the thesis is quote unquote playing out. Now, to answer your question directly, if you kind of continue extrapolating out what we thought was going to happen, um, is we believe that Bitcoin is just kind of right on line to end up hitting $100,000 by the end of next year, which at $12,000 today is a pretty big price jump. Um, But, you know, that's kind of our conviction. Everything we're seeing so far is like, we're still on track for that. Uh, We'll see what happens. Yeah. And, and then I guess playing into that, um, I know you've probably talked a bit about it, but a company uh, converted their cash 
balance sheet uh, listed on the they're listed on the Nasdaq. I believe they converted their cash to Bitcoin. What uh, do you think of that? And then what do you see that doing to Bitcoin? Then other companies that are looking at this and saying, "Is this you know a, a viable option?" Yeah. So a uh, company's MicroStrategy, and, and uh, I'll, I won't get the numbers exactly right, but they had about half a billion dollars um, in terms of uh, capital decisions to make. And so what they decided was about $250 million they put into Bitcoin. Uh, and then they basically held a, a $250 million capital raise by selling some shares, right? Is, is kind of the, the overgeneralized uh, description. Um, the $250 million in cash going into Bitcoin is the first publicly traded US company to decide to do this. Now, there's two things that you could say. One is there's a lot of people who would just be like, oh, there's some, you know, entrepreneur out there or CEO who's trying to capitalize on the excitement around Bitcoin. They're going to do this. A bunch of people are going to go buy their stock and like it's more of like a stock manipulation game or kind of riding the hype cycle. I went and I read the press release. I read everything that the CEO talked about in terms of why he was doing it. He's a Bitcoiner. Like this is not a, I'm trying to, you know, just ride a hype cycle. I mean, word for word, what he described in the uh, press release is the Bitcoiners argument against inflation and quantitative easing. And he basically said, look, I'm worried that the dollar is going to get devalued. Therefore, I can't hold dollars. So I need to get into something else. And I've chosen Bitcoin as our reserve asset. We'll see what happens, right? But I do think that a NASDAQ listed company doing this, to your point, opens the door now. Uh, nobody wants to be first. Yeah. A lot of people like being second, third, and fourth, right? And so I don't know when that'll happen, but, um, you know, and, and the company, by the way, was, uh, I think, a $1.2 billion valuation company. So it's not like it was, you know, some, you know, $50 million kind of penny stock, right? It's a billion-dollar yeah. business. So I, I tend to think that, um, you know, it, it'll be a positive sign long-term. Yeah. What Tell do you think that. about it? Uh, I mean... I think it's really bullish for Bitcoin because, <laughs> I mean, if you if you have a publicly traded company, I mean, you know, if if it doesn't go well, that guy's probably getting fired, right? Um, but now, other companies, if they don't at least look at it or, or talk about it, you know, their shareholders or people are going to be asking questions if it does happen to go to you know 100k by the end of next year. So. Um, I think it definitely opens up some interesting conversations that, um, you know, I'd love to be on the, the fly on the wall at one of the next board meetings at, at some of these big companies. Uh, what about uh, Warren Buffett and, and Berkshire getting into gold, um, which I, I believe they haven't done before? And do you see that as or getting involved in gold as a bit of a gateway to getting into Bitcoin because they, you know, try to perform the same function really yeah um so i recently wrote about this and so uh i'm probably gonna sound like a nerd because i know all these uh weird stats but uh it ultimately breaks down to um warren buffett has historically been very anti non-cash producing commodities so gold being the, the big one um he's just said look it, it just sits there right it doesn't produce cash and and uh, he really likes cash flow um so 
in order to get the exposure to gold, he didn't go buy gold. He bought a gold miner, which is kind of interesting. Or he still bought a business. They're just in the business of gold, which is almost like uh, I, I feel like there was like a, a midnight negotiation inside of Berkshire. Like we got to get exposure to gold. And he's like, we're not getting gold, but you could buy a gold company, right? Um, so, so I think that was kind of the first thing. Is like he still stayed with his principles of buying a cash producing business, but it is ultimately dependent on on the performance of gold. Uh, the second thing is like his portfolio is struggling right now, right? So I think it's seven of the uh, 10 of his 10 largest holdings are financial services businesses. And I think all uh, six of the seven or seven of them, I can't remember, are all down like double digit percentages. So he's actually doing like pretty bad. And, and so those financial services on the average uh, drawdown is like 20 to 25% uh, this year. But then he's got these other businesses. Uh, three of his top 10 holdings are non-financial services, and they're up like 15 to 17%, something like that. And most of that's driven by Apple. So it's a technology company. So Warren is in this weird position, I think, where if you look at the portfolio, he's held on to a lot of like what I'll call old school businesses, right? They're not the big tech companies and whatever. And he's publicly stated over and over again, like he's not the guy who understands tech, right? In terms of like the, the first one, he's 89 years old, all that kind of stuff. So he kind of changed his mind on the whole gold thing, but he's still lagging because he's kind of investing in like the old school way. Yeah. I just don't see him buying Bitcoin, no matter you know how, if he lives to he's 120. I just don't think that he's going to do it. Um, what'll be interesting is you know the guy's been an absolutely legendary investor, probably the best to ever do it. Uh, he's amassed this incredible fortune. At some point, he's going to hand it over to other people, and so kind of like what happens once he's not making the decisions, right? Whether he's alive or, or not, but just like when he's not making the decisions anymore. Like I think it'll be a pretty big moment if Berkshire Hathaway bought Bitcoin, right? I I just don't see that happening anytime soon. If for whatever reason that happens in the future, I mean, what what do you think happens to Bitcoin? Well, when he bought Barrick Gold, uh, I think I saw today it was up uh, at least this morning it was up like ten twelve percent, right? And so like I, I'm you know this obviously yeah. you nor I am giving any kind of financial advice or anything like that, uh, and I have no clue what gold miners are trading and kind of if that's yeah. a normal movement or whatever. But like people follow him. Right, so when he makes a decision, yeah. people are like, "Oh, I'm just going to do what the, the smart rich guy does," right? And yeah. so I think that uh, it's only would be a positive. It's just you know what what's the impact? I have no clue. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, you talked about gold being a non-income producing asset. Um, I think a lot of people, and I was one of those as well, that thought Bitcoin was was the same. You know, you kind of just buy and hold it and and hope it goes up uh, over time. But then. Uh, you told me about BlockFi and uh, you could earn interest on, on your Bitcoin, almost like a term deposit. Um, can you tell tell people a little bit about how that works? Yeah, so you got to remember that cash is also a non-cash producing asset for the most part, right? So if you just hold dollars, it's not like you know more dollars just appear out of anywhere. Um, and we all do that, right? So, so I think that um, it, it's a question of just like, okay, how do you turn a non-cash producing asset into an interest-bearing asset, right? And so uh, what most people do in the traditional world is they'll go deposit in their checking account uh, or they'll buy you know, some kind of treasury or whatever. But let's just say the deposit in the bank account. The bank takes those dollars and they go lend them out on the back end, 
And sometimes they can lend them out, you know, five, six, seven times per dollar uh, with leverage. And so the bank earns a rate of return for those loans. So, you know, I'll make up numbers. Let's say they earn 3%. Uh, and they turn around and they say, you know, hey, Deli, you're such a great customer. We're going to pay you 0.03%. <laughs> And, and so like the spread, right, that 2.97% difference, they keep. And it's a great business for the banks, right? But you make like minuscule uh, interest and whoever is the borrower obviously got to borrow capital. So there's a whole kind of financial system based on the deposits that go into a bank. BlockFi basically is doing the same thing, but for crypto. So you deposit Bitcoin, a stable coin, uh, Ether, they got a couple others. Uh, they take it and they basically lend it out to people. Uh, those people pay an interest rate. Um, and the difference is that BlockFi pays uh, a very high percentage of what that revenue is back to the users. So um, yeah, don't quote me on it, but I think it's like Bitcoin's like 6% interest. Uh, the uh, stable coin's like 8.6%. Like, like these are very high rates of return. Um, and so what it does is it looks very similar to what happens in the legacy world. It's just not with dollars now, it's with these digital assets, right? And so, you know, there's risk at your bank. There's obviously risk um, in, in the crypto world. The legacy system's de-risked a little bit with FDIC insurance, right? That hasn't come to crypto yet. So, so I always just tell people like, the mechanism's the same. Go do your research. Don't go put 100% of your money in one bank. Don't go put 100% of your money you know, in BlockFi. Um, but, but I do think that in both systems, what you're doing is you're turning a non-cash-producing uh, you know, asset in, to earn interest now. And so I think that's why you know, BlockFi is interesting and obviously why people put money in the bank too. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that's what, what got point. you excited about BlockFi? Uh, I think... Apart from like the crazy growth, um, <laughs> talk, talking to Zach, um, I think, you know, as an investor or just, uh, you know, holding cash right now, um, you, you're kind of looking for a place to put it. And with uh, the stock market going crazy, you know, it doesn't seem to me like it's uh, a great place to put it right now. I don't know how much more upside it, it has. Um, you know, putting it in a, a bond, like uh, I wasn't really, you know, too too interested in that. And then when you said you could get, you know, six percent um, return, in in my head, I was like, well, even if Bitcoin goes down six percent, I'll, I'll be even on the year. That, that's one way I looked at it. Um, but then it's like you're you're also getting all that upside potentially down down the line, and um, even if you know, it, it spikes like it did in 2017 and then comes back down, you're still earning interest on, on the way up, um, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. I look, yeah. you, uh, we're going to make you the spokesperson. You, uh, you nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> nah. and then, I, I know we're almost done here, but what, what do you have planned the next five to 10 years? What are your goals? Um, that's a great question. I don't really do uh, long-term goals. Um, I, I think part of it is uh, I have two rules in life. The first being uh, if I ever do something that I don't have fun with, uh, I stop doing it. So you know, I'm having a blast doing everything from the Bitcoin stuff to the content, whatever. Uh, if one day I wake up and I'm just like, I don't want to do this anymore, I literally will create a video and just like, that was an awesome run, guys. See you later. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so I think that that's always kind of in the back of my head. Um, and the second thing is uh, I focus much more now on like who I'm doing things with more so than like what I'm doing, uh, which sounds kind of weird, but just uh, I found 
the people you surround yourself with end up like dictating a lot of it. Right. And so I just want to be around like smart people that I enjoy being around and they enjoy being around me and I respect them. And, and, uh, I tend to think that like, you just kind of figure stuff out as you go. So it's like, just get the right people. You know, it's kind of like a team, right? Yeah. If you get the right guys on the court, play, go play basketball, like magic happens. Right. And I think that that's, you know, friend groups are, are very similar. So it's more about like who I'm doing it with more so than like what we're doing. Yeah. Right. Uh, me, uh, I mean, hopefully the Olympics go ahead next year. Uh, want to win gold medal, uh, for the Aussie national team. We finished fourth in Rio, which is the worst place to finish in the Olympics. Uh, and then, uh, try to win another NBA championship, uh, keep playing for as long as I can. And then, um, run, run a few more angelist syndicates, do it off a track record and then, uh, get it, get more into this when, when I'm done playing. How many more years do you think you can play? Well, how, how old are you? I'm 29. Okay. So I'm still pretty young. 35? Uh, Is that? Uh, I always said 40, but maybe, <laughs> I don't know. I've got a nine-month-old son now, and he's a lot of fun, and uh, it is a lot of time on the road. So uh, I would say 35 to 40 range. We'll, I'll, I'll evaluate it when I get there. <laughs> All right. Is there anybody who, well, I guess Jordan came back pretty, when he, like this, what, the third time he came back or second time he came back or whatever. But is there anybody in recent history that's played uh, kind of upper 30s into their 40s? Carl Malone, maybe? Yeah, Carl Malone. Uh, I mean, Jamal Crawford just mm -hmm. turned 40. He, he got signed by the Nets. I mean, LeBron's 35, I think, and he's, yeah. you know, could, could win the MVP. And uh, I'm, obviously, he's an anomaly, but I think uh, with sports science now and, um, you know, taking care of your body for a long time, it, it kind of adds up and gives you those extra years on the end of your career. For sure. All right. I get asked you the last two questions. Who do you who do you think is going to be the MVP? Oh, uh, you make me pick between Giannis and LeBron. Uh, I think it's a coin flip because I think LeBron has the has the momentum around the story as well, and um, I think everyone in the sports world lo loves a good story. But um, yeah, one of those uh, two guys. One of those two for sure, I think. Okay. Uh, who do you think wins the NBA championship? Uh, I think uh, either one of those teams. I think I think Milwaukee is going to come out of the East. I think I think the Lakers are going to come out of the West. Uh, but I think it's going to be a, a, a tough series, I think, between the Clippers and, and the Lakers. Uh, and then also the Rap the Raptors and uh, Milwaukee. I'm I'm looking forward to watching both of those. If the Lakers and Milwaukee meet, you think <laughs> you think LeBron can take it? I I would never bet against either of those guys. Um, you know, and especially okay, LeBron. Fair. Uh, just you know, seeing him come from three one down, what what he's done is just. Um, I would never ever bet against him. <laughs> I I, uh, uh, I had forgotten already. How that's how crazy 2020 had been. Uh, I was on the phone with a a friend, and he's a big Toronto Raptors fan. And so we were talking about LeBron and Lakers, whatever. And uh, he's like, "Yeah, like I just think that like the going back to this idea of a story." He's like, "And then you know you get LeBron going and winning at a third team." 
Kobe. Like, and he's trying, and I was like, oh, wow. Like, I literally had forgotten that that happened this year. Right. Yeah. And, and not that I forgot that the event happened, just that it was in 2020. And so you, you start to like put it all together. And like, that would be a really cool story to see happen. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of basketball to play between here and there. I know. It's uh, looking forward to watching. It's good to have it back on. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, all right, guys. Before uh, before I let Delhi go, if uh, if you listen to Pop Podcast, go listen to the Delhi Podcast. He was real original with the name. So was I. <laughs> <laughs> I learned from you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and vice versa. Where can people find you on the internet? Uh, Twitter at Matthew Delhi. Um, I'm on Instagram, YouTube, um, but prob- probably Twitter's best. Angel awesome. list. Go get, go check out a syndicate. Uh, it is definitely worth, uh, worth looking at. I, there's a bunch of folks here who are accredited investors who listen to the podcast. Uh, m- there's a lot of athletes who are trying to invest, but, uh, but Deli, I've literally seen the process firsthand. He knows what he's doing. Um, so I'm excited to, uh, to see what other deals he finds, but, uh, thank you so much for doing this, man. This is a blast. Yeah. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate it. A lot of fun.